Hi there. You're listening to The Fray. This is the podcast where we examine when big ideas from big thinkers meet big trouble. This is episode two of part two of our ongoing series on Socrates entitled The Alpha Human. Part one was all about Socrates the man and the history, and part two is all about Socrates and his philosophy. So if you want to play some catch-up, you can go ahead and start with some of those episodes if you'd like. If not, welcome, and I'm happy you join me as we enter the fray. I have a thing for words. They are an endless source of entertainment and education. One of my favorite words is the word Hector. The word is defined as talking to someone in a bullying way, like my Marine Corps drill instructors love to Hector new recruits. You may recognize that word, but for a different reason. The other Hector is an actual person, and he has come up in previous episodes of this podcast series. He was a Trojan prince, son of King Priam, and the man that Achilles killed in one-on-one combat. Hector was honorable, forthright, and died well. In no parts of the Iliad does he display any trait that would be classified as bullying. So what's up with the word that became a verb? This is the funky part, the weird word part that gets me so jazzed about units of language. There was, in fact, a lot of hectoring going on leading up to the altercation, between Achilles and Hector, all of it done by Achilles, who stood out in front of the gates of Troy, yelling for Hector. His calls were petulant, insulting, and, well, bullying. But for some reason, the onerous act of bullying and disrespect became known as hectoring. If language and words were more like mathematics, then the term most definitely would be Achilleing. But words are different, less logical more artisanal. There's just so much to think about when it comes to words. There is the origin story for each word. There is the differences in meaning, the changing of the meaning of the word, whether through time or across cultures, like how freedom meant service to the Athenians, and now it has a distinctly different meaning in our world today. There is the fact that there are words in some languages that don't exist in others. You could go even more basic and consider that humans are the only species that use anything like words at all. Words and language share that singularity with reason, as we discussed in episode one. It is not all about the origins and definitions when it comes to words. There is the inherent slipperiness of words, the double meanings, the puns, the irony. Add to the mix tone, context, emphasis, and all the other attributes that drip off each and every word we choose to use. To most people, there is little thought given to this part of language. In others, like myself, it is almost all I think about. It is one of the reasons I have come up with to justify my dislike of small talk. It is just one form of language use. For most people, it is the only form they use. So when I encounter a small talker, I get really bored really fast. When that happens, I end up being rude in some way. In certain circumstances, it can really suck to have me around. 
All this time I have spent preoccupied with what other people were saying, I developed a couple of working theories. Number one is that people really do not pay attention to what is coming out of their mouths. And number two is how much we rely on the listener to interpret our meaning. That first one is one of those statements that most people act as if it is obvious. Most of the time, they also work off the assumption that they are not afflicted by this malady. Most of us feel this way. Even the ones who allegedly spend their whole day thinking about words. I was made aware of my own penchant for obliviousness when I visited a psychic and had her record our interaction. Now, this was not something I was doing for the sake of science. This was years ago when I was all kinds of idiot. Though the small kernels of my obsession with words and language were still there. Now, I did attend the psychic with an agenda. I was very skeptical of the whole practice of psychic abilities. I knew going in that a well-trained psychic is merely an overly astute observer who uses tried-and-true skills to extract enough information to spin it back in a feedback loop. I mean, who doesn't like to hear about themselves? Psychics provide a unique service of helping you write your own story, but they were not supernatural in any way. And I was certain that I could in the very least, proved to be an uncrackable nut that stonewalls all attempts to excavate details about myself. I fully expected to leave the psychic, whomever I chose, in a pool of frustrated tears. I chose a tarot card reader, for no particular reason. After I sat down, she asked me if she could record the session, on a cassette tape, no less. I said yes, and she began the session and I immediately clamped down on my mind and prepared to deal some psychic justice. Now, you are probably not surprised to hear that this is not in any way how it all went down. What I thought was going to be an exercise in futility turned out to be a genuine breakthrough. Now, don't get me wrong. I held fast and true to my stated intent. I was a stone wall. I gave the psychic nothing. But to my amazement, that didn't stop her from nailing down every detail of my life. She knew everything about me, my past, my dreams, my fears. Despite my best efforts, I was an open book. Needless to say, I was blown away. And the best part? I had a cassette tape with the recording of my session. I couldn't wait to share it. I told my wife all about it. I told her she knew everything about me. I told her nothing. It was amazing. Here, I told her, I have proof. Back in those days, it was harder than it is now to just play a recording. No smartphones or tablets. Once I got in front of a stereo, I popped the tape in and hit play, a wide grin of anticipation on my face. Within the first 30 seconds of the recording, my wife burst out laughing, and a look of anticipation on my face had turned to one of confusion. I could hear the voice on the recording, and I could recognize that it was my voice, but the words that were coming out of my mouth, I felt I was hearing for the first time. I was spilling my guts to this stranger. I was telling her all the details and dreams that she would be skillfully feeding back to me momentarily. There was no magic, not really any skill involved. I just started talking and had absolutely no clue what I was saying, both during the session and for as long as it took me to find a tape player. I would have gone to my grave believing that I had been part of an actual psychic event. I had no idea what was coming out of my mouth. Some of this can be chalked up to my personal deficiencies, but overall, it remains to this day a reminder that I can't be too confident of what my own mind is doing. Where would I be if there was no recording of that session? My second observation slash theory concerns the fact that we have no access to the working of anyone else's thoughts other than our own. We have no strict control on how our words are interpreted. 
we are almost completely at the mercy of the listener. I think of how often email communication would exemplify this. It is extremely difficult to imbue electronic communication with intent. This includes texting. If it were not an issue, there would have been no need to develop emoticons or emojis. The same thing happens when we talk. Though we have many more tricks to employ, a raised eyebrow, a shrug of the shoulders, an exasperated sigh, it is still left to the listener to interpret. Now, combined with my first observation that people don't know what they're saying, you get a pretty small overlap in the Venn diagram of listening comprehension. It's amazing that we're ever able to communicate at all. But that is where reason comes in. Reason helps us in two ways, both having to do with communication. First, it helps us come up with quick and easy reasons to back our own position. This quick and easy trait is why sometimes you have no idea what you're talking about, like your mouth gets away from your thoughts. Now, this may seem like an unhelpful trait, but in the big picture, if you can convince others of your argument easily, it's usually beneficial as you do not expend too much energy when it is not needed. Now, the other side of reason helps you determine the validity of other people's arguments. Now, unlike the lazy self-reasoning we do in our own brains for our own reasons, our reasoning faculty creates a much higher bar to clear when it comes to accepting another person's arguments. This game of word tennis that ensues in a good argument is all about the volleys of reasons back and forth, and those reasons will become increasingly focused and on point as rebuttals are produced. Now, pay attention to your next argument. I bet you dollars to donuts, the back and forth will closely mirror this behavior. Your initial arguments will be weak and they will grow in strength as they are challenged. And in turn, your rebuttals will be easily produced at first and become increasingly difficult as your adversary likewise ramps up his reasoning to counter yours. There is most definitely a connection between reason and the use of language. Now that jives with what we know about how evolution works. They evolved to work together. Evolution is that proverbial high tide that rises all boats. While there may be individual derivations of evolved traits or even groups of individuals that share this derivation, now whether that be a mutation that is well-suited for fitness or a lagging trait or set of traits that is that about to be weeded out, we are all, generally speaking, all the same, in the same manner as we all share two eyes, two legs, two nipples, and one uvula. Overall, you are not likely to see a major portion of a population have wholesale different attributes than others of its species at any given time. We are all equal in that sense, sort of like makes and models of cars. There are many types of cars out there, and then they all can have customization. But that customization is limited and shared amongst all cars. Some cars don't fly, for instance. But all cars can have a radio. How good of a radio can vary greatly, but the style and price tag of an audio system doesn't change the inherent nature of what makes a car a car. It is an interesting question to ponder how much that has to do with humans' faculty for grouping, but for the sake of our purposes, it is enough to understand that all humanity is equal in that sense, that if we are inhabiting the same time and space, then we all share the same general traits. We, like the car, may individually be able to run faster, think of a pun quicker, or think up the general theory of relativity in our spare time, but we all share the same faculties, like thumbs, nose hairs, reason, and language. One of the little quirks of this relationship between reason, language, and evolution is that it works like the gears of a clock. With a clock, those gears are circular and some are bigger than others, ensuring different rotation speeds. 
the overall effect is balanced and accurate output, the time. Now, the evolutionary clock works in a similar fashion. In the case of reason and language, evolution is playing the long game. Therefore, it has a much larger circumference. It's a big gear. It is difficult at times to see it even moving at all. Reason's gear is much smaller, so we can see movement or progress within our scope of knowledge. Now, language's gear is even smaller, spinning much faster and therefore evolving at a higher rate. The output is verbal communication, whose speciality is coming up with reasons and judging the veracities of others' reasons. The output is the pace of change in the language and thoughts of humanity. Language changes the fastest, sometimes almost in real time. Consider the evolution of, of certain racially charged terms and how quickly they can be removed from common use. Well, for most of us. I find it one of the biggest telltales for closed-minded thought when someone laments the loss of something generally agreed to have been evolved out of culture. Think Confederate statues. Evolution waits for no one. If you are actively trying to fight the inertia of change, then you are no better than the Roman emperor Caligula, who drew a sword and ran into the sea to do battle with the ocean. Which really happened, by the way. And as a way to placate our modern minds a bit, when the question comes up as to how someone can still be, say, pro-Trump at this point, Caligula did get his entire army to join him in his hacking away at the English Channel. There will always be weak-minded people that will allow someone else to do the dirty work of thinking for them. As Emerson said, a foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. So this brings me back to Socrates and his fellow Greeks. My claim from episode one of part two is that these fellows were the first and most widespread users of reasoning correctly. Now I want to amend that slightly. The Greeks were the first and most widespread users of reason and language correctly. This is because you cannot have one without the other. Reasoning is designed to work best while you are engaged in argument. You must use words to be engaged in an argument. Reason without debate is weak and dangerous. Debate without language is nonsensical and worthless. Make no mistake about it, they, the ancient Greeks, were the only ones we know of in the entire history leading up to the ancient Greek society that used language as a tool. Humans had been talking for tens of thousands of years. Words and language had been used as a simple but powerful tool to communicate by all humans. The Greeks, and in particular Socrates, repurposed words and language to put it to work at something new altogether, as a tool to discover heretofore unknown truths of human knowledge, existence, and reality. That brings us to one of my favorite all-time things in life, the concept of irony. There's probably nothing I like thinking about more, mostly because I can't quite get my mind around what it is. There is a mysterious quality to irony, a concept that is applied to words, both spoken, written, and sung, as well as other forms of art. Where irony really goes off the rails is when it appears that the universe itself enjoys messing with you, as irony happens all the time without intent. That simple fact that irony exists without intent is spooky to me. As we work through this episode, some of the examples of irony will sound a lot like sarcasm. And in fact, in many cases, they are both used for the same reason. But it is important to note the key difference. Irony, while it can be easily created, also happens spontaneously. It somehow exists out there to be found by anyone willing to look. Sarcasm, on the other hand, is always created for the sole purpose to mock. There is no such thing as spontaneous sarcasm. Another way to think about irony versus sarcasm 
is that when on the chance that some listener interprets something sarcastic that was truly not meant to be, once presented with the question, are you being sarcastic, and the speaker says, no, not at all, then all remnants of the sarcasm disappear. It is definitely not the same thing when it comes to irony. No matter how much you can refute that you are not trying to be ironic, the irony remains. Like I said, spooky. So what about Socrates? Well, our understanding and use of irony was forever changed by him. In just his short lifetime, with the power of just his bare feet and indomitable will, Socrates was able to wrestle into existence the modern world of irony. I'm not overreaching, in my opinion, to call it our world of irony, because in many ways, our entire world runs on the slippery stuff. Take a look at the textbook definition of irony. This is from Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. Quote, irony is the use of words to express a meaning other than, and especially the opposite, of their literal meaning. Unquote. How much of your daily life is made up of words that express a meaning other than their intended meaning? Consider advertising, marketing, fake news, gaslighting, dog whistling, virtue signaling. The list goes on, right? Where would we be without irony? Or think about it, where would we be if you didn't understand irony? Consider a student-teacher relationship, where the teacher says something ironic to an underperforming student, something like, you're an absolute Einstein today. Most of us spot the irony pretty quickly, and most assuredly, the boy does. There is no answer here, just a riddle that the student needs to solve. Am I doing something wrong? Was I rude? Have I forgot something? The irony only tells half the story. What he does with the riddle is up to him. But what if the student doesn't have an ear for irony and completely misses the teacher's intent? Then the student would, of course, believe that he is a genius. That, in turn, could be problematic. We seem to have a lot of people in places of power these days that don't appear to have an inkling of a sense of irony. In a society built on irony and the subtle undertones and understandings this powerful concept entails, to not be able to grasp them can lead to some dire consequences as we are finding out. But they didn't have that type of problem back in ancient Greece. They had irony, of course. Mocking each other was probably one of the first things that we as a species learned to do. In fact, the Greeks had three words for irony. I'm not going to try and pronounce them, but they stood for funny irony, like puns, and unintentional irony, or just plain jokes. Think of an ancient Greek traveling from sunny Athens to rainy Oregon and remarking, what fine weather you have. The other type would be mocking irony of the sarcastic variety, like the example Gregory Vlastos gives in his biography of Socrates, in which the actress Mae West, in RSVPing after being invited to President Ford's state dinner, declines with the fabulous, quote, it is an awfully long way to travel for just one meal, unquote. I love that one. It is important to note that the first two types of irony are used together quite often. The third type, well, it stands alone. The last word the Greeks had for irony was the one that eventually became the irony we know today. The Greek word is spelled iron with an E, so E-I-R-O-N. And for most, if not all of Greece, it was a negative connotation concept. It meant to deceive, to lie, to obfuscate, to misrepresent. The Greeks like to call it dissembling taking the real meaning and tearing it down for other purposes. 
It is a far cry from our sense of irony, and it brings something to light that I find very interesting. Before Socrates started to redefine irony, you could be in big trouble if you found yourself on the other end of someone interpreting what you said as being ironic. Remember, irony doesn't disappear just because you say you didn't mean it that way. Irony is funny that way, and if the listener in this case is more inclined to view your even unintentional use of irony as the bad form of irony, well, they could be fighting words. Don't take my word for it. Vlastos, in his biography, has gathered some great examples of the type of thinking that surrounded Socrates' particular style of irony. These are from contemporaries of Socrates. This is from a dude named Thrasymachus. Quote, Heracles, this is Socrates, habitual shamming. I had predicted to these people that you would refuse to answer and you would sham and you would do anything but answer if the question were put to you, unquote. This is from another guy named Theophratus. Quote, he pretends not to have heard what he heard, not to have seen what he saw, to not have a recollection of the thing to which he agreed. Such men should be avoided like adders, unquote. Even decades after his death, the stench of ironia clings to Socrates. Aristotle thought the most dangerous of people were, quote, the quiet, disassembling, unscrupulous, hiding their evil intent under a cool exterior, unquote. And what, may you ask, was Socrates doing that was causing so much consternation? He was utilizing words and language in a wholly new and different way. He was repurposing something small, almost useless, used only for jest and mockery, and using it to examine the fundamentals of human nature. And his contemporaries just didn't get it. They thought him silly, vain, disingenuous, deceitful. They called him a liar. They eventually put him to death. Now you may be saying to yourself, wait, are you saying there was no use of irony in ancient Greece like the way we know it today? No great works of irony like Don Quixote or Catch-22? Surely with all those writers back then, there had to be tons of literary irony going on. Alas, that is not the case. No one was using irony in common practice in ancient Greece. Recall the play Clouds by Aeschylus, the one that we reviewed in part one that disparaged Socrates so much as an impious corrupter of youth. There was no clever wordplay going on. If you recall, this is a snippet. Quote, One night, when he was studying the course of the moon and its revolutions, he was gazing open-mouthed at the heavens. A lizard crapped upon him from the top of the roof. A lizard crapping on Socrates. That's rich. Unquote. Not exactly Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, is it? Be my guest. Scour the ancient text. According to my man Gregory Vlastos, who did scour the ancient text, there is no instance of our modern irony in anything written anywhere in Greece before Socrates. With Socrates, quote, we see a new form of irony unprecedented in Greek literature, to my knowledge, which is peculiarly Socratic, unquote. So what was this irony breakthrough that changed the word and the world? Pun intended, right? Vlastos in his book describes this new form of irony as complex irony, where a simple irony is defined as using certain words to mean, in most cases, the opposite of what you mean. Complex irony is at once saying the opposite of what you mean, as well as saying exactly what you mean. How's that? Well, let's take a look at a couple of examples. Here is some simple irony by way of Vlastos' book again from Socrates himself. 
The ancient Greek source of this is Xenophon's Memorabilia. At some point, Socrates found himself at the home of one of those wealthy non-citizen women that were popular among the ruling class at parties, as they, of course, had their wives stay at home. Her name is Theodote. Socrates has paid her a visit, ostensibly to help her enlarge her clientele of wealthy men. In a manner much the same as Alcibiades in the story of his attempted seduction of Socrates, Theodote attempts to strike a bargain in which she offers some of her women friends to Socrates in exchange for knowledge, demurring that attaining such knowledge from someone of Socrates' stature would be truly wonderful. Socrates replies to Theodote, quote, I have my own girlfriends who won't leave me day or night, learning from me filters and enchantments, unquote. He then goes on to name a handful of doddering middle-aged men who visit Socrates to learn philosophy. It is interesting to note Socrates' response is markedly different than the one he gave Alcibiades. He was much sterner with him than he was with Theodote. This makes sense as we know Socrates to be unfailingly polite. But it is also an interesting glimpse into the person Socrates, as it also portrays a little nervousness, which is to be expected as Theodote was known to be very attractive and very intelligent. Another consideration is the fact that this mundane piece of irony, Socrates certainly doesn't mean real girlfriends, and there is no attempt to deceive here. Theodote gets it. We get it. All his time is spent with old men, arguing about the meaning of life. It all seems pretty mundane, until you consider that this benign instance of irony is the only instance of irony used by Socrates or anyone else in the entire literary work of Xenophon's memorabilia. Now, it consists of over 200 pages of conversations, and that is the only irony we get. Now, irony did exist in ancient Greece, and the other famous book of Xenophon's, Symposium, has plenty of examples. This may have to do with the difference in tone between the two works. Memorabilia is a serious memoir-style work, while Symposium is more like a comedy in the sense that it takes place over the course of one evening of drinking and partying. Once again, Socrates, by way of Xenophon and Vlastos, engages in some simple irony, this time of a different sort. Socrates and a dude named Callicles are having an argument, and due to the drinking, probably, Socrates gets a little testy and wields his irony in a much more aggressive and blatant way. Socrates begins, quote, Since by better you don't mean stronger, tell me again what you mean, and teach me more gently, admirable man, so I won't run away from your school. Callicles replies, You are mocking me. Socrates retorts, No, by Zetheus, whom you used earlier to do a lot of mocking of me, Unquote. Now, Zetheus, in case you were wondering, was the brother of Callicles and was infamous in Athens for his juvenile antics. Now, that seemed to strike a chord with Socrates. I cannot read this exchange and hear it any other way in my head. Socrates is indeed mocking him. It doesn't change the fact that this is a good example of simple irony, the sarcastic, mocking kind. And most importantly, it and the other example with Theodite are examples of irony without any intent to deceive. In both cases, Socrates was using irony with the intent of the listener to get exactly the meaning of what he was really trying to say. In the case of Theodote, it was, no thanks, I don't need a pimp. And for Callicles, it was, I'll give you one more chance to make your point, dumbass. In both cases, the desired effect was achieved. A big part of the myth of Socrates' manners must stem from how often he used irony to deftly extricate himself and or emasculate his adversary, as the situation dictated. Even Alcibiades could pick up on the fact that Socrates was using deflection techniques. 
Quote, he spends his entire life aeronominos and jesting with people. That term, aeronominos, is obviously a version of iron. But which version? The benign joking kind? The acerbic mocking variety? Or is it something else? Now, most of his contemporaries and the big thinkers that followed viewed this as a recognition of the deception of Socrates. Vlastos disagrees. We have just reviewed two instances of Socratic irony, and in neither case was there any attempt to deceive. Why would Socrates start lying all of a sudden? Doesn't it make as much sense or more to assume that he continued to build on his newfound ability to use language in a whole new way? Like getting out of an awkward social situation or insulting an enemy without presenting yourself as aggressive? Then there's the fact that just a few lines later in that speech by Alcibiades, he goes on to say this, quote, I maintain that he is very much like those statues that sit in the workshops, who when opened in two, turns out to have the image of gods inside. In taking this all in, it is important to recall the reason I did part one of the podcast and why it was devoted to just Socrates the man. Having a better understanding of the context of who Alcibiades was, who Socrates was, and how he behaved, this type of quote can be seen for what it is. One man's admiration for another who has mastered himself so much as to be able to present a life that is lived ironically solely for the purpose of living the best possible life. Recall the quote from Alcibiades when he was talking about Socrates' speeches. Quote, but if one looks at them, once they have been opened from the inside, first of all, one will discover that they are the only speeches which have thought in them, and further, that they are the most divine of all things, that they bear great images of virtue within them, and they tend to greatest, that is, to everything that pertains to the man who strives to become beautiful and virtuous, unquote. Now we go back and add to the first quote from Alcibiades. After comparing Socrates to a statue that has gods inside, Alcibiades goes on to say about seeing a glimpse of the inside of Socrates, quote, I saw it once, and it seemed so divine, golden, altogether beautiful and wonderful. Oh, my fellow drinkers, oh, my fellow drinkers, how full of sophrosyne he would seem to be inside if he were opened up. Alcibiades makes a great case for a life of irony. Is not the life of Socrates very much like the wisdom of Socrates? Has any philosopher been so inseparable from his beliefs as Socrates? The ability of Socrates to overcome the everyday distractions of life and devote his very being to philosophy was self-evident throughout every episode of part one of this series. And I'm not alone in thinking this. When the Romans were digging through their enormous amounts of Athenian works, they started to redefine certain aspects of Greek thought to a more Romanized version of it. Irony was no exception. A guy named Quintilian, who lived a little bit after Jesus in the first AD, first century AD, is credited with establishing the definition of irony that we still use today. He gives many examples of irony, verbal, situational, unintentional, sarcastic, and life. Now, that last category was reserved for persons who lived a life, ironically. There was only one human being placed in that category. Socrates. Now we get to the game changer. All the examples of Socratic irony so far have been of the known, simple type of irony. He undoubtedly utilized simple irony more often and in more effective ways than most of his contemporaries, but where he really made his mark is when he began to transform the negative type of irony into something altogether new. Gregory Vlastos, in his book Socrates, does a great 
job of breaking down all of this complex irony stuff. And I urge you to pick up a copy of his book if you want the full fire hose. Now, it all starts with one of the most famous and infuriating of Socrates' statements. That statement is, I know nothing. Surely he can't mean that literally, right? It is obvious that he knows some things. Throughout the writings on Socrates and about Socrates, he is quoted as saying things like this from his defense at his trial. Quote, I came by this reputation, O Athenians, only by a sort of wisdom. What sort? Exactly that which is, no doubt, human wisdom. Unquote. So exactly what is Socrates trying to do when he says this? Quote, I'm aware of being wise in nothing, great or small, as in fact I have no knowledge, neither do I think I have any. Unquote. I think the best answer to that question is to finish the previous quote from Socrates that comes from his defense at his trial. Take a listen. Quote, I came by this reputation, O Athenians, only by a sort of wisdom. What sort? Exactly that which is, no doubt, human wisdom. It looks as though in this I am really wise. But those of whom I spoke just now, he would be wise in wisdom that is more than human. I don't know how else to speak of it. Unquote. I know nothing is a complex irony because it can be, and more importantly, it is designed to be both true and false. Socrates claims to know nothing. I know nothing. That is false because it is clear that he does know some things. I know nothing of supernatural matters is true because he doesn't have any clue about what makes a man virtuous, brave, pious, happy, or any other areas of wisdom that is more than human. It is both ironic and non-ironic. Socrates is telling the truth, but he is also not telling the truth. And his aims, much like when he used simple irony, is not to deceive. And in this case, it is to educate. The statement, I know nothing, is a tool, what is called a heuristic, kind of a fancy word for an organic algorithm or a series of repeatable steps to achieve a desired result. Modern definitions of heuristic rely heavily on the term shortcut, which is silly. I mean, isn't everything a shortcut? I mean, what is a long cut? I mean, what is a non-heuristic solution? Everything has steps. In any event, Socrates' avowal, I know nothing, is designed to elicit the listener to strip away all the levels of BS that have been heaped on their thought processes. What is piety? I know nothing, so please keep it simple. This means you can't just throw out any old answer, which according to how reason works, is exactly what you will try and do. I know nothing continues to cleave away at flaccid arguments until they harden or are destroyed. That is what Socrates used his complex irony for. Could he also incorporate other forms of irony into his fancy new heuristic irony? Of course, he's an irony ninja. I mean, remember Callicles from earlier? Quote, Since by better you don't mean stronger, tell me again what you mean, and teach me more gently, admirable man, so that I won't run away from your school. Unquote. Another area that Socrates was accused of being a deceiver was in his abilities and desire to teach. Vlastos gives the example of how Socrates both avows and disavows the teaching of virtue. From the dialogue, the Platonic dialogue, Laches, or Lakes, quote, Socrates says that he has no knowledge of the art of teaching virtue and is unable to tell which of you is speaking truly about it, unquote. Then later from that same dialogue, quote, 
If Socrates was willing to take charge of the boys, one shouldn't look for anyone else. If he were willing, I would trust my own son with him with the greatest pleasure. Unquote. Here we are again with the complex irony both meaning and not meaning what Socrates intends to do. In the first quote, Socrates is being asked to settle an argument. In the second, he is shown as being at least open to the suggestion that he will work and guide a youth education. He both avows and disavows teaching. Again, if one were to see this through the lens of Socrates, it is obvious that he is not being deceptive. He is practicing his desired form of teaching. He is not going to give them an easy answer. He wants the younger men to figure it out for themselves. I don't teach is both true and false, ironic and literal. And that brings up the question, why not just tell them that? But you probably already know the answer. Socrates is not going to sacrifice one iota of his beliefs. He at best wants to present a riddle that needs to be solved. He believes that in solving the riddle, one becomes vastly more educated than if one was just told the answer by a so-called wise man or expert. It must have been terribly infuriating to be a self-important person and to have to deal with Socrates' complex irony. It is meant to disarm and dissemble, and it does, all the time. It is incredibly effective both as a heuristic option for teaching, but as also for establishing yourself as a humble, practical person, something very much at the core of who Socrates thought himself to be. Recall the quote from Alcibiades earlier, when he was gushing about seeing the true Socrates. Alcibiades used the term sophrosine, or sophrosine, which means the ideal in character and soundness of mind. It is the literal opposite of hubris. When you refuse to claim knowledge of the unknowable, refuse to seek easy answers to your question, and live a life of simple service, always displaying the best manners and civility, you can begin to affect change. Now, this is a good time to return to ancient Rome. Earlier in the episode, I mentioned a guy named Quintilian. He was a Roman intellectual from Spain, Rome was enormous by this point, who spent most of his life chronicling and categorizing language. His specialty was rhetoric. I credited him with establishing the modern version of irony. He defined irony as figures of speech or tropes in which something contrary to what is said is to be understood. There is no taint of deception in this definition. It had been removed. Remember, just 400 years earlier, when one used irony in such a manner, quote, they should be avoided like adders, unquote. Joking, mocking, or lying, those were the only choices for irony in Socrates' time, and even after that, for that matter. So what changed? Was it all because some Roman teacher decided to make a change? Then it would seem that Quintilian would be much more well-known. There is probably no way for us to know the details of the transmorgification of the concept of irony from one of disdain to what it is today. There is no way to contact trace the term through history up until the first century AD. We do have some very big crumbs that have been dropped, none bigger than just a few generations before Quintilian and the last days of the Roman Republic, one of the giants of the Roman world, himself a huge admirer of Socrates, decided to sit down and examine irony and Socrates' effect on it. Now this someone we have referenced in earlier episodes in the series, Marcus Tullius Cicero. Now this guy is fascinating in his own right. While the Romans had never been known as great thinkers, and on the other hand, they have been very few cultures who have been better doers than the Romans, but Cicero is the exception that proves the rule. Truly an astounding intellect, he was a child prodigy whose gifts for the spoken and written word pulled him from the backwater of obscurity 
into the highest offices in all of Rome. He was considered the greatest orator in Rome and maybe the greatest in all of Roman history. He lived at the same time as Julius Caesar and was often a foil to the great man's plans. In fact, Cicero is probably the only one who could boast being better at anything than Julius Caesar, and for Caesar was also considered a great orator and user of language. Cicero towered over Roman thought, and so when he decided to examine irony and Socrates' place in it, it's bound to have an effect. This is from Cicero. He says, quote, Urbane is the dissolution when what you say is quite other than what you understand. In this irony and dissimulation, Socrates, in my opinion, far excelled all others in charm and humanity, most elegant in its form and seasoned in seriousness, unquote. And with that, some 50 or so years later comes Quintilian, and we have our modern definition of irony. The quote from Cicero, thanks again to Vlastos' book, is interesting as it reads a lot like someone speaking of mathematics or music, elegant in form, far excelled in charm and humanity. I don't think this is a coincidence. One of the consequences of Socrates' development of new forms of irony is the elevation of language out of merely the practical in its use into new realms such as tools for philosophizing, satire for criticizing, the mechanisms of modern language like foreshadowing, metaphor, literary irony that turn prose into art. Another way I like to think of it is to compare this shift in irony and its far-reaching consequences for language to Western music. Generally speaking, music started out as a basic tool used in religious ceremonies of the Pythagoreans back in Greece, and then began to grow out of its initial astringent use and was used in similar but more complex fashion by the church, but still extremely parochial. Then came Bach, and then classical music, then jazz, right? A progression that seems more and more distant and freedom between music theory and music performance and individuality. Freeing irony had the same effect on language. Socrates willed into being the very notion that you can play with words, that you can use word theory and word performance for more than just supernatural or mundane reasons. Words can also create distance and freedom to grow at the individual level. To wrap it up, I'll let Gregory Vlastos take us out as much of this is his idea in the first place. Again, I can't recommend his book enough, and if you're interested in picking his amazing mind, pick up his book and give it a read. And with that, take it away, Mr. Vlastos. Quote, And when Quintilian, two generations later, consolidating Cicero's use of the term, encapsulates its meaning in the definition cited above, we are no longer in any doubt that Ironia, the Latinized version of the Greek iron, has shed completely its disreputable past. It has already become what it will come to be in the languages and sensibility of modern Europe, speech used to express a meaning that runs contrary to what is said, the perfect medium for mockery without deceit. Subsidiary in the use of the parent word in classical Greece, this now becomes the standard use. Ironia has metastasized into irony. Exactly what made this happen, we cannot say. We lack massive linguistic data to track the upward mobility of the word. What, I submit, we can say is who made it happen. Socrates. Not that he ever made an assault upon the word. He changes the word not by theorizing about it, but by creating something new for it to mean. A new form of life realized in himself, which was the very incarnation 
of Ironia in that second of its contemporary uses, as innocent of intentional deceit as is a child's feigning that the play chips are money, as free from shamming as are honest games, though unlike games, serious in its mockery, dead earnest in its playfulness, a previously unknown, unimagined type of personality, so arresting to his contemporaries and so memorable forever after that the time would come, centuries after his death, when educated people would hardly be able to think of Ironia without its bringing Socrates to mind. And as this happened, the meaning of the word altered. The image of Socrates as the paradigmatic iron affected a change in the previous connotation of the word. When Quintilian remarks that Ironia may characterize a man's whole life, he refers to Socrates and only to him. Through the eventual influence of the afterimage of its Socratic incarnation, the use which is marginal in the classical period becomes its central, its normal, and normative use. Ironia becomes irony.